What's up and welcome to another episode of Movie Schmovie. This is episode number 259. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm one of the hosts of this podcast and I'm also here with who? Ron. And John. <laughs> uh, love it, love it. Smooth as silk. And you know, you can do some magic. Like you could go in there and like cut those pauses. You know, you can make it sound real good, John. You know, you got those skills, so... I can cut the pauses shorter, or I can elongate them. Whichever, you know, I can make it whatever uh, you're feeling, man. I yeah. mean, whatever feels right. Right. I can, you can add crickets. I can make it more or less comfortable for the listener. <laughs> the anticipation, I think, they're, every time they're probably going, "Wait, is I know it's Steve, but who's he with this time?" Yeah. You know, right? And then it, they're like, "Okay, good, Ron. Good, he's got Ron." But uh, what's the other guy's name? And then they get to make a sandwich and come back, and then I say, "And John." There you you go. know, so it's there. You go. It's a good setup. Well, we wanted to talk about some current events. It seems like a lot of little news stories have been breaking lately that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about on the show. And there's one I'm just going to throw out there that I think we all have opinions about. Michael Keaton is going to be back in a DC Universe film, perhaps most likely playing a version of Batman, maybe the same version he did uh, back in the uh, Tim Burton films. What do we think of uh, Michael Keaton returning to that, that world, definitely, and that role, possibly? Uh, I think it's incredible. Um so I heard the theory was that um, he would maybe play Thomas Wayne, who was depicted in Flashpoint. Um, if you ever have some time, uh, go see Justice League, The Flashpoint Paradox. Um, the depiction of Thomas Wayne in that movie, is uh, the animated movie, is really incredible. Um, Batman dies and Thomas Wayne assumes the role of the Batman. Um, he is using guns and everything he can use around him rather than kind of having this moral code. He has a code. It's not quite as strict as uh, Bruce Wayne. It's a really cool watch. And a lot of time travel and alternate versions of things, it's, it's worth watching. But yeah, so um, that, with that context, I'm super happy to see that Michael Keaton may jump into the role in this Flashpoint storyline. Um, I think it'd be really cool. And it'd be an excuse to show a person that isn't, the Batman that's going to be in the trilogy to depict Batman. That'd be a really cool excuse. Yeah. It's a, it's a really cool. Anytime you like this reading the headline was exciting. Uh, you know, just cause like we all love, or I think we all love Michael Keaton's Batman, uh, on this podcast, but in general, people seem to really enjoy Michael Keaton's Batman and, or his Bruce Wayne. But, um, it really is just like another example though, of just like, I feel like the DCEU or DC universe, whatever, the branding is uh, on that. It's just like trying, still still trying anything and everything, but it's kind of gotten to a point now where it's just like, it's kind of cool, I guess, maybe. I don't know, that they're going to just like go for anything and see what, you know, we've, we've been saying this, but like see what works kind of thing. Uh, some things have obviously worked better than others for them and, <laughs> and with some of their movies. But I think it's kind of cool, like, you know, to, to rely on something that is, pretty beloved and uh especially with michael keaton being in a part of his career where he kind of was a away from blockbusters for a while and in the past years has been doing nothing but blockbusters and if you're gonna do one and you know maybe have him back involved with one that could get some goodwill from fans it's i mean batman is is one of them and i'm not super familiar with uh the flashpoint storyline i was reading about it just when his news broke and um I think it's a pretty cool idea, especially when they start talking about, 
you know, that this version of Bruce Wayne is like kind of be more of, or this, this other reality, other universe that gets spun off when Barry Allen goes back to, to, I think save his mom or something. Is that right? I, I don't know the details, but, um, for, for what I read about for the movie, at least what their idea is, uh, that this version of uh, Bruce Wayne would like kind of serve as like the Nick Fury type of mentor mm. to uh, superheroes in this world, or you know whatever kind of spins out from whatever the Flash does, which is cool. I mean, it's different. I mean, I'm not again, I, I'm not exposed to that idea in the comics, so I, I'm aware of it and I've heard the term and I've seen the crossover they did with the Flash TV series with uh, Ezra Miller's Barry Allen, but I just. Uh, I just want to see more about this. I guess I, I kind of want to see if it actually closes the deal. I think it's still, I don't know that it's been confirmed yet that Keaton's a hundred percent in, but it's just like, it's just an interesting idea in the least. I just think it's kind of cool that, you know, they could loop this Batman that most of us are familiar with back into this story and still have other Batmans existing in the property. And it's kind of like, if it works, it's kind of ingenious, uh, on their part because it's just like having your cake and eating it too. And just like having all these different ideas of what Batman can and can't be. And, uh, I don't know. I'm not against it basically is what I'm saying. I, I think it's interesting. And I think that they're doing enough weird stuff and I was like, they don't know what's working. I mean, Joker makes a billion dollars, but you know, other superhero movies aren't doing so hot. Uh, but on their end, I mean, so I think they're just open and like I remember reading an idea uh, reading an interview a while ago where someone had like talked to Andy Machete who was supposed to be directing that film and I think they asked him what you had said Ronald about like Thomas Wayne and like whether Jeffrey Dean Morgan would be playing Batman because like there were rumors that some of the photos that uh, Snyder was posting like the bat suit uh, that it was actually him in the bat suit and that that may have been an idea that was a part of this process. Right. Because he played Thomas Wayne in the Zack Snyder version of that, of that part of Batman's origin, you know, so seeing him come back into that role would be a really cool way to loop him back in. I kind of hope Michael Keaton actually is playing Bruce Wayne and yes. playing a spin on, on an older Batman that we might imagine is the same Batman totally. from, yeah, from yeah. those other movies. This, the same way bringing uh, JK Simmons into the Marvel, Spider-Man films uh, sort of hints at a multiverse where perhaps in this world we now can contain the mm. Tobey Maguire films as well. You know, it suggests sure, that sure. that's that that's out there now that we're in the the multiverse mode. His powers are a good gateway for that kind of storyline. Right, right. So um, I'm not familiar with the comic book story either, Steve, except to know that it does what we've just discussed, that it introduces different possibilities and alters the timeline forever, you know, sure. in a way, or at least for as many issues and as many months as the, the company wanted to stick with it. And then they probably, <laughs> they probably fixed it yeah. at some point. You know, that's what comic books do. But... Um, but no, uh, to me, I think that what's interesting about it is it signifies that DC is doing, now they're kind of able to do that Marvel thing of just announcing some bit of casting or some potential bit of casting that just makes you go, oh, I kind of want to see that now. Can't wait. Cannot wait. Well, in Batman-related news, uh, director Joel Schumacher died, and he directed two of the most maligned uh, by certain folks, in comic book circles anyway, the Batman films he did were Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, the films that famously uh, sort of took Batman back through uh, the, 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 the prism of camp uh, that 
the Adam West show popularized. And I think a lot of people at that point were taking Batman very seriously and they didn't want to see, you know, nipples on the bat suit and they didn't want to see <laughs> weird montages of Robin, like using acrobatics to do laundry or whatever that was. Um, I don't know what you guys thought of Joel Schumacher's Batman films. He obviously did so much more than that. I mean, the, really, the logline on this guy is how many different movies he did do and how many of them you might call classics and how many of them are are known to be, uh, you know, poorly received. It's an interesting career. I, I told you that I saw where someone said no one made as many good movies and bad movies as Joel Schumacher. <laughs> I, I, I sort of mean that as a compliment. What do you guys think of his legacy, his Batman films, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, uh, and more? I, I don't know, man. Like, yeah. A life like his is, you know, his, his films are all over the place, man. Some of them I really, really love. Um, it's One just randomly came to my head, uh, Phone Booth, which was this utilization of space that I just hadn't seen in a lot of movies. It kept my attention. It was just well made. Um, and he has a ton of movies like that. So um, I did hate that Batman and Robin started with a hockey scene. Um, and I do kind of think poorly of that film, but you know, I didn't, I didn't hate Batman forever. Um, and I do think that he contributed so much to cinema, um, that, you know, it's, it makes me super sad 80 or 20 or, you know, it's anybody passing that can't make more art and experience life always makes me super sad. So, yeah, I mean, I think. I, I, in general, kind of look back and the ones that I remember and the ones that I think of are really movies that I look back positively on and in some ways, like, are some of my favorite movies ever. Um, I mentioned, like, The Lost Boys is, like, a all-timer for me, and obviously that was something that a lot of people that we know and just of our generations is just really have a lot of love for But even, yeah, like, The Incredibly Shrinking Woman, like, I remember watching that when I was younger and, like, loving that. I mean, <clears throat> but... I think that like movies like Falling Down, movies like the John Grisham movies that he did, like The Client and Time to Kill. And honestly, I really like Tigerland, which is like the movie that kind of, I guess, sort of introduced the film world to Colin Farrell. But um, I would say he did have some movies that were not good movies. But in general, like if I hear his name, I kind of think about a lot of movies that he made uh, that really had a lot of variety to them and um like even like something like saint almost fire being in that conversation um which you know kind of shows versatility and a filmmaker that had a lot of different things to talk about or that he wanted to say or talk about and um yeah agreed it's really sad i mean seems to have lived a really long and successful in a lot of ways and exciting and kind of unique life and um just, yeah, thank him for the movies he made that I fell in love with as a kid and even some as an adult. So um, I know he did a couple episodes of House of Cards, too, that I liked, but um, it's a bummer to hear of anybody like that passing. Yeah, he's kind of like an iconic director, I think, and definitely a director of his time. You know, movies that came out in the 80s and 90s kind of were very 80s and 90s movies. So that, that kind of travels with him too, but it's definitely sad to see. And I, I read someone saying this, and I was I was thinking, one of the things I did know about him was that he was also kind of out and proud in an era where you didn't always know these things. Uh, people were often closeted. People with big sure. careers were often yeah. closeted, and he was not. And whatever that's worth, I think that what this person said that I was like, that's an interesting thought. They said he was not making films at a time when when people were 
openly looking for other sensibilities. And when, when a gay sensibility was being sought after in mainstream movies, he was working at a time when in order to get those themes in there, you had to sort of smuggle them in and get them past the milk toast average audience goer. Sure. And the fact that he was able to get some of that sensibility, some of that, I don't know, queer perspective, you might say, into his movies in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when <clears throat> the climate was not friendly towards that type of storytelling, I think that's another thing that might make him special. Again, I can't quantify it personally, but when I read that, I thought, that's an interesting point, because I did always know that about him, and it did kind of seem like, oh, here's a guy whose career hasn't been harmed in any way by, you know, it being known that he's gay. It, at least sure. it seemed to me that that was the case. So that's an interesting way that someone can kind of be a pioneer just by being just by being a, a, a you know, a forceful artist of sorts. Yeah, Rest in peace. A guy who kind of feels like one of those last of those old guard directors from, from my childhood that just kind of is a big name, like a director who actually has a name. I think we've talked before about how that doesn't always happen. I think the last thing he directed were was, I think it was like the episodes of House of Cards that he did, which was, I think, the first season, I think is one he did. So that would have been like six or seven years ago. He did like the middle the middle episodes in season one, I remember, and uh, so that would what is that two thousand thirteen? So it's been a while since he made anything. Yeah, I recently randomly watched uh, DC Cab. Um, I'm a huge Mr. T fan, and uh, it's a wild, weird movie with uh, a lot of randomness and zaniness, but it's actually a really good movie. <laughs> Um, I'd, I'd watch it again. I'd, I just remember seeing the the VHS when we used to go to uh, Errol's video when I was a kid. Never saw it. I was like, I got to see this movie with Mr. T. It wasn't until <laughs> I was 36 years old that I saw it. And I was entertained from the beginning to the end. So, Joel, you, you made a movie with Mr. T and you'll always be <laughs> an incredible director because <laughs> of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I loved Mr. T so much in, uh, in in Rocky Three, and I loved him so much on the A Team that when DC Cab came out and it was R rated, and I couldn't go see it, I remember how bummed I was. You know, <laughs> like um, he also wrote Car Wash, I believe, which is another yeah. kind of seminal yeah. uh, movie from the '70s that was a uh, you know known to be just this big this big broad body comedy. But um, and yeah, you mentioned what a what a what a cable staple the Incredible Shrinking Woman was, Steve. I, yeah. I mentioned that movie because that's always been one that stands out to me when I realize he made it. Yeah, Lily Tomlin was the lead in that. I don't know how many big uh, Hollywood comedies she was the lead in, but that movie was was a big. I mean, alongside uh, like Nine to Five, which is another Tomlin film, um, that's a big part of my HBO diet from from my childhood. Oh yeah, was uh, the Incredible Shrinking Woman. So. Mm. One other thing I wanted to ask you guys about, and I just didn't know, there's been a lot of stories, and we don't have to cover them all, but have you caught much of the news coming out about season two of The Mandalorian and uh, this talk that they're bringing Boba Fett into the show? Um, and just because I thought one of the coolest things about the first season was that there was no Boba Fett, and they were able to kind of take that Mandalorian iconography and that cool-looking armor and make it its own thing with a different character— there's references to all these existing characters from from 
Star Wars IP, whether it's like novels and games and comics or, or movies, what do you think of the fact that Mandalorian Season 2 sounds like it's really spiraling out with all these connections to what has come before, rather than continuing on into something new? Have you followed those stories and had the same kind of feeling of just not being able to be that excited that they're, oh, Boba Fett's going to be in it? Like, I don't know that I care that much about that at this point. Am I am I crazy not to care? Maybe, maybe the presence of Boba Fett will be... Uh, a good thing um it always makes me feel weird when something kind of hits on a level that not even they expected you know baby yoda is huge people referencing him constantly in memes and um you know comparing cuteness to baby yoda and stuff like that it's just one of those things that they could not have anticipated even even if they manufactured some aspects of the show for that um, it's hit a lot uh, bigger than they expected. So with that said, you know, they, they, there's some like crowd pleasing that they have to do a little bit, you know, some things that they have to do to rope people in who may not have been into the first one, but may be into the Star Wars world. And so, you know, you have broader context for the story and all that stuff. So I get it. Um, I don't want to write it off. Um, mostly because this is the only thing that Disney, uh, putting legs on Disney right now, it's the only thing that they really have. Um, the Marvel stuff is not coming out. Uh, it, it seems like the, the Mandalorian's coming out before the Marvel stuff, correct? I think that's right. Mandalorian is still set for October because they had finished so much principal photography before this happened, and they're doing post-production remotely, whereas the Marvel ones had not finished shooting yet. So they have to get back in there and finish some shooting to, I think, come out in November? Is that when... Uh WandaVision is supposed to come out still. A sidebar to this whole Star Wars conversation is that the Marvel thing seems so scattered to the winds right now because after Endgame, there really hasn't been anything that has kind of picked up the banner of what people should really give a shit about. I don't think Black Widow was going to be the new standard bearer for their movies. It almost feels like a uh, a favor to Scarlett Johansson to give her character a, a movie. It could be really cool, but it doesn't seem like this points to the future. And the Eternals, which was going to be coming in November, which is now coming out sometime next year, um, we don't know anything about that yet. So we can't really, there's no cultural uh, footprint to that idea yet. Do you know what I mean? So right now there's kind of nothing really, Marvel's kind of, I mean, and maybe the, it's smart. Maybe they can back off and make some really cool shit and come out. But do you know what I mean? That it seems like it used to be that the conversation always had a little bit of what the next Marvel thing was going to be. And I feel like right now it seems totally irrelevant to any conversation we have about what's what's happening in movies right now. Yeah, it's it's strange, man. It, I don't know. Does it feel like Marvel's kind of gone from the scene to you too, Steve? Is it just COVID or is there something else going on? Do they need to kind of, you know, go away and then come back when we want them? <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it, they do, it does feel like it's kind of gone away. I mean, I think that obviously Black, <clears throat> excuse me, Black Widow coming out was kind of intended to be like not the movie, like it's going to like be like this massive, massive hit. Obviously, it's going to make tons of money when it does come out. But I mean, I think that was supposed to kind of be the kind of, I don't know, holdover until, and I think it was November or December that WandaVision was supposed to come out. Um I do think that they really want to see like what these shows can do, and yeah, like the Eternals was supposed to come out in November, so like you were gonna get like two movies, you know what I mean? Like there was gonna still be this exposure that we were kind of used to, and then layered on top of that, these TV shows. So I mean, maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. I mean, it's like everybody's suffering in a way because of 
what's happening with COVID and the industry and what can be made and what's been put on hold. Um, but maybe it's not a bad thing. I mean, like, you know, maybe there's a bit of a palate cleanser and things being pushed back is going to give people an opportunity to maybe be more excited for it when it eventually comes out in whatever, you know, whatever way they're going to enjoy it, whether it's a movie in theaters or a series on Disney plus, but, um, but I don't know. It's just interesting that, um, it's kind of changed the game across the board. I mean, some shows like, yeah, I think I did read that WandaVision was done shooting. So a lot of that stuff being done is, is, is happening now and, and has been since, you know, March. So I don't know if that'll, if they'll still make that target. Cause I, I agree in, gen- in general that like they need more. I think Ronald mentioned it that like, you know, Mandalorian is like really what they have in terms of, ri- of original content that people are really excited to see or, you know, be the main motivation of why they're, subscribing outside of the the library but i mean i think uh i think it'll be interesting like once some of these series are coming out to see if it offers anything new to the ip much like the mandalorian did you know to start this conversation you know in kind of how it surprisingly became its own thing that really hit hard and people really enjoy it um to kind of circle back to your first mention john about like the whole boba fett stuff like I, I, I think it's kind of like a, I think it's gonna have to do a really uh, interesting kind of like straddle because I think, I think they, I think they eventually, whether that's season two, or, I mean, obviously some of these things are happening, but there's been tons of casting announcements and, you know, characters coming in from the the animated series and like you know names popping up that, you know, but the reality is is that these things may simply be like just a character shows up for an episode or, you know, a part of an episode. And that's that, you know I mean? Just to show that they're existing in this world along with this new character that you really are trying to sell to an audience. So I think that's kind of how I think they would most efficiently accomplish that. I mean, you know, hearing names of other big name actors being announced that you don't really know who they are yet. Like those announcements would be more interesting to see if those were regular reoccurring characters on the series um, as opposed to saying, oh yeah, like Boba Fett's coming in and he's going to be a major part of the whole season. Like maybe down season three or four, include him more, but maybe just have him exist in this world during season two and show that it's there if that's what they're ultimately deciding. But I, I think eventually like whether it's season two or down the line, like I, I think it would make sense to kind of bring some of these characters in just to kind of from a, <laughs> from a business standpoint, you know, I hate to say that, but I mean, I think they found success with a new property, but I don't really think if they handle it properly, it would hurt them at all to kind of, you know, have known characters, you know, fan favorites pop in to be a part of the story, but not main, not like a main motivation to the story or to the narrative that you're following season to season for the Mandalorian. Yeah. I guess my big thing is that I saw a reference to redeeming the character of Boba Fett because a lot of people are mad that after being like the badass of the universe, he, um, he got knocked into the Sarlacc by accident oh, right, and right. died that way in Return sure. of the Jedi. And sure. I think to me, that was always kind of part of the gag of that character that works for me on a certain level. But I also recognize that if if you wanted to act like he was the coolest guy in the world, his death on screen was kind of ignominious, you know? So I can understand 
that and both think it's kind of chicken shit to double back on that because <laughs> it's a weird kind of bold one of those weird George Lucasy choices where you're like, what? That was your plan for that guy? You know, was to just have him pop up and then then look really cool and sell a lot of action figures and then die in kind of a stupid way. <laughs> but yes, you're probably right that if it's done well, I won't have this complaint at all. And I have nothing against the idea of Tamara Morrison, that actor, getting some work playing Boba Fett for real. Um, so you know, I'm not uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to be Scrooge about it, but it, when I read that headline and I saw people really celebrating it, I thought, ah, this is not what I want from Star Wars, is, is going back again for, you know, more familiar shit. Right. Um, well, I had one other big topic, but I wanted to see if you guys had any other little news tidbits you wanted to talk about before we go into that. Oh, Cobra Kai coming to Netflix. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that moving from YouTube to Netflix was kind of... I feel like that was kind of in the cards for a while. Like, I think people were talking about that. That was like an obvious no brainer for Netflix because it is like a pretty big hit on YouTube. But, uh, it was official this week that, that the third season and the prior two are going to be coming to Netflix, which is pretty cool. Um, I was late to that series, but, uh, I loved it. I watched the first season. I, I haven't watched it, but, but I will now that it's on Netflix. I mean, when it comes to Netflix, I'll definitely watch it. So, I love season one. It's damn near flawless. Did not see season two. Is it worth checking out? Is it, is it equally as good as the first? Because the first one was really good. If you're calling the first season flawless, which I agree, I love the first season. Like, yes, this, the second season is also very good. I don't know if it's as good because it's kind of like, I don't know. You know, you know, like the cat's out of the bag in terms of what the idea for the show is. So it's a little different. But. It's yeah. I mean, if you enjoyed it at all in the first season, it, the second season is a really good watch, and it kind of sets up a cool idea for I'm hoping what they do with season three. So cool. Definitely cool. can't look to, can't wait to see that. Well, this last thing I wanted to mention, I just I've been wondering what you guys think about this. There have been a lot of headlines in the last few weeks about this, and I think there's an obvious uh, sort of rightness to this. People should be rectifying this issue, but there is a lot of maybe different approaches to correcting. Uh, these shows that have blackface in them, whether it's sketch comedy or a sitcom. Um, and I think, a, you know, I think, for instance, Disney has put a disclaimer in front of a couple of its movies to say they have outdated portrayals in them. Oh, no. um, and then um, uh, Netflix has pulled an episode of uh, with Bob and David because there's a sketch that has blackface in it. And I think Tina Fey has requested that the various episodes of 30 Rock that have some form of black or brown face in them be pulled from streaming services. What is the value of being exposed to something that might be good, but that just has outdated shit in it um i'm i'm all about getting rid of all the things that were kind of racist uh, um so i i deal with a conflict in my life in general and i guess the idea sometimes is like because i, I don't do cartwheels about things that offend me that they don't offend me um i've always been offended by blackface i've always been offended by microaggressions and weird racial jokes in work in the workplace. I've always been very offended by that stuff. But, you know, you choose how to express your anger through different things. Um, not a big fan of I mean, there's, there, there have been a lot of think pieces about Tina Fey's lack of consideration for the portrayal of black women and blackface showing up. This has like been an ongoing conversation. I love her comedy, um, but I've also been conflicted by the random portrayals, uh, the terrible portrayals of black women and stuff and, and black men. So I, that's, I feel weird about it, you know, as a comedy nerd 
who watches a ton of 30 Rock, man, I love that show. But, you know, I'm always cringing during the course of comedy as a black man watching stuff that you are guaranteed a random weird joke that is not funny. It's just a pointed, shitty thing that people just put in the middle of comedy. It it, it always exists. Um, However, I do think we should have some mile markers. I do think we should keep things up sometimes not 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 the statues necessarily but there should be some sort of agreement that some things stay around so that people know that racism existed i don't want to not know that racism (laughs) you know i don't want erasure of of uh racism i don't want it to happen anymore and um you know if somebody's weaponizing it i obviously don't want it to be weaponized so that's that's all i want and and that is hard for racist people though Asking those two pe- two things of people to not do it anymore and to not weaponize it is like asking a person not to breathe sometimes because it's so ingrained in our culture. I kind of that's the one takeaway I have. Like when you were mentioning, John, like there seems to be maybe be some lasting effect, like having piece of this around still. But I mean, I kind of was thinking about Ronald would just said it's like having things that exist still so that you don't forget, like where it came from or what it changed from to be more appropriate or to be more uh, considerate. I don't even know, just to be more right uh, with history or with just society or just with ethics and morals. Like it just seems like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the like complete removal and, and wiping out of something is really the best approach. I, again, I don't, I don't have the exposure. uh, I don't have, the same experience that you know like Rana was just describing watching 30 rock i do i do relate you know there's all there you can easily identify some of the jokes that he's talking about that just seem like there's you know like there's really no place for that or really no purpose for that or it seems very just kind of tone deaf and like immediately um and not even really seen as funny at all. You know, if you're using that for humorous purposes, that you're getting a little charge out of how, of how taboo it is. I don't care if it was the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you know, you're getting some kind of a taboo charge out of it. And if people are laughing, they're getting a little taboo charge out of it too. So if you know you're getting that taboo charge, you know, you're playing with some form of fire by putting it in, you know, it's the kind of like risky humor that people like to do that sort of, "Mm, did I do that? You know, like, and, and I, I just don't think that stance works when it's coming from uh it's like consider the source and i think what tina Fey said in her statement was you know sort of she's she's figured that out she's learned that so i do think she's smart but i think uh she's guilty of that same thing that a lot of uh sort of well-meaning white people were guilty of in the 90s into the end of the 2000s which is the sense that because they feel that they are beyond racism they feel like they can make these jokes, you know, it's like, um, on Seinfeld when, when the dentist, Tim Watley becomes Jewish and Jerry thinks it's just so he can tell Jewish jokes. Uh, it's like being in show business and, and working with Tracy Morgan doesn't mean you can make any joke you want to about black people and that people aren't going to kind of go, huh? You know, it's the kind of thing that once you notice it, it really stands out. I don't think that we're going to lose anything if those episodes are gone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I don't think, I don't think we're going to lose anything but i i do think it's a little weird yeah yeah now like confederate flags obviously take them down uh stuff like that but some of this stuff gets a little strange when you're talking about you made the thing and it wasn't that long ago it wasn't 30 years ago it was maybe seven years ago it was maybe 10 years ago when you should have known better so that's interesting man
We'll see what happens in the future because <laughs> they're going to have to go back quite a bit. I mean, there's going to be a lot of maybe maybe Netflix will have a racism algorithm. <laughs> what do you guys think about Tropic Thunder in 2020? I haven't seen it in a while, but I really like that movie, man. I you know I was uh, I was aware of what was happening, but I thought the joke was that it was that he's an asshole that doesn't really realize. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, sure he, he, yeah, that was the joke, right? And. It was it was kind of presented that way, and why am I more accepting of it? I mean, because it kind of puts it on the table what it is, and maybe maybe that's that's the the pill that's easier to swallow is when somebody presents the truth in it rather than just being like, "Hey, I'm Snoop Doggy Dog, and, and I'm a white man in blackface." Like Jimmy Kimmel did a, that, that that impression of Snoop. I think they found that audio of that, like that weird audio of. <laughs> It's like, it's within 10 years, man. You know, within 10, 20 years, that was never acceptable. That stuff was never acceptable. And yet, here we are. So. I mean, if that's the only avenue of comedy that we shut off, I think we'll live. You know what I mean? Like, if we just say, don't do this anymore, I think we'll be fine. Right, right. Well, if if you guys are ready to move on to the the things that we watched, I'll start because my movie kind of ties into this. There was a movie called Becky. Do you know this movie? No, no. With Kevin James as a as a white supremacist who's escaped from prison. Oh, the white supremacist, yes. With his uh, with his big with his big friend, and uh, then they uh, run across a family. Uh, well, a, a man and his daughter and his girlfriend and her son, who are staying at a cabin. And uh, the daughter is Becky, and Joel McHale is the dad. And his, uh, I, you know, I don't remember the name of the actress who played, um, who played his his fiance in the film, uh, um, but but she's African American and she has an African American kid. And so you would think with white supremacists descending on this cabin that the that the black mom and her black son would have more of an involvement in the story than they have in this. But they kind of just sit on a couch for the whole movie while the while Becky. Um, the perhaps aptly named, I don't know if they named her knowing that Becky is kind of, uh, you know, Twitter slang for a certain kind of white girl, (laughs) (laughs) but like Becky is this sort of badass who takes on the white supremacists and, and it doesn't quite save the day because people do die, but, um, she, you know, she kicks, uh, kicks a lot of Nazi ass and I don't know, I felt very like it, it kind of soft pedals some of the aspects of, of the fact that these guys are Nazis despite the fact that Kevin James has a swastika tattooed on the back of his head, there's only a few scenes where any of that bubbles out. And I'm not saying I wanted to see a movie of just full-on racism, but it's a little bit weird to kind of visually signify all this stuff, uh, but not really deal with it on a character level. It kind of feels like a missed opportunity for Kevin James to just go off as a bad guy. But um, but he does have a few crazy scenes. And there's one scene that if I described it, you would go, oh, okay, I might see this just to see that happen. Uh, to Kevin James. Um, and then the girl, Lulu Wilson, I think is her name. She was one of the kids from Haunting of Hill House. Uh, she's blonde in this. She was a dark, dark brown haired girl in that. So it took me a minute to really see that it was her. It's got an odd tone to it. I mean, there's a few scenes where she's wearing this, this knit cap that's got little animal ears on it. So she kind of almost looks like a Wes Anderson character in some of the framings. But then there's this ultra violence in it. And I think the moments where it just goes crazy are probably the best moments but there's some real downtime and some real lagging and the, the logistics of this home invasion scenario, it, it more so than most has like a 
20 to 30 minute section where there's really just kind of people wandering around. There's not a, a real sense of geography or a real sense of momentum to the storytelling, but there's a, you know, there's a few kind of cool moments. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it didn't really work for me overall, but I did think that, that, you know, at its best moments, I was like, okay, I can kind of see what they were going for here, but it's just an odd mix of elements. It really seems like the mom and the son should have been more, more characters. And it seems like, Becky wasn't a likable enough girl. She's kind of petulant and pissed off. And so seeing her turn out to be this ass kicker doesn't really, you know, you don't really enjoy it that much. <laughs> Steve, what did you see? I was going to just, I, I've, I've been watching a bunch of like random TV stuff. I haven't really seen many movies, but I, I wanted to mention season two of Homecoming on Amazon Prime. Oh my God. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So... I, I, I like I had it on my list to watch like the weekend it came out and it just completely got buried. I don't know how, but um, we came back around to it last weekend to kind of catch up on it. And I mean, again, the same goes for the first season. I love that these are only like 30 minutes long or 35 minutes long. So easy to watch. Um, so in general, I don't feel like the season is as interesting or as strong as the first season. I, I, I thought the first season was like, great like i legitimately loved the first season with uh julia roberts was i guess the star of the first season but um i don't want to like spoil anything for the second season but i think it's kind of cool that and you can kind of see a lot of this in the trailers if you've seen the first season but i guess in general just to say that it, it ties more into the first season than the trailers kind of lead to believe um especially because it's basically promoted as like a new mystery. And it genuinely is a new mystery if you if you really cut down to it. But I think um, the way it ties into the first season, while I found that really interesting and cool, and, and mainly just because I love Stefan James, I think that's how you pronounce his first name, but the actor who most people probably would know from probably like Selma or he was in um, the Jesse Owens movie Race. If Beale Street could talk. Yeah, he's also in Beale Street. But um, I love that guy so much. I like want to see everything he's in. And I was happy to see him in this second season. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, not to go anything really with story. But I thought it was, I thought it was cool. Like I like this story. I like this show. I like the idea of it kind of being like, um, you know, it's got this like kind of questionable uh, technology research, the, like the marriage and, and, and gray area of technology and medical testing and war and government and military, like all these interesting things that just seem like inevitable. Um, well, we've already seen it and experienced it and it's a real thing, but like just this like collision of where these things kind of come into contact with one another and, and maybe get used to uh, severely negative effect uh, on a personal level, you know, while a company or while a government sees it as a win. So there's a lot of like morality stuff going on and ethics in this sh in the show. And um, I don't know, I just thought it was really interesting. And I, I think it helps that it's like easy to watch. It's, you know, I think only like seven or eight episodes and they're a half hour each maybe. Um, but yeah, I love him in the series and um Oh, Janelle Monet is great. She's really good in this season. That's like really the new character. But I was surprised. A lot of the series is about um, a character from the first season played by is, is Hong Chao, who most people probably know 
um, as Lady True from HBO's Watchmen that came out earlier this year. But she has a more prominent role in the second season. Um, and it's kind of cool how they tie it to season one. And I don't know. It's a cool series, man. Like Sam Esmail is the producer, showrunner, directs a couple of the episodes. And um, I like the visuals. I love how the episodes end. And I like the score. It's really kind of creepy, haunting music in the show. Um, but it's cool. It's just like a really great... It's a great watch. It's easy to watch. It's easy to digest. It's not too big, not too heady. Like I tried to get, I tried to start devs. Like I was literally going to start devs this weekend, and then I was like trying to watch it with Aaron, and I was like, I don't know. Like we're we're kind of like zoning in and out of this together, and then we were like, oh shit, Homecoming season two's on there. Let, let's go back over to that, and that totally hooked us. Um, but again, like you know, technology and like you know, and even like agriculture and you know, crazy shit like that comes into play in this series and um i don't know i'm kind of curious if they do anything else with it but it's uh, amazon prime so if you have amazon prime the whole season's up you i'd recommend go back and watch the first season which um also had great roles with like shea wiggum if you like him or bobby Cannavale's in the first season um but definitely worth catching up if you've never watched it and if you have i would check out season two for sure because i definitely was into it well now that we're done with golden girls uh i definitely need a new binge so i'm gonna check it out did you watch it ronald steve I fucking love season two of Homecoming. It wasn't obviously wasn't as good as the yeah. first. So here was my issue, man. Um, second season was like really poorly received. Like if you look everywhere, the general consensus is that it's yeah, bad. yeah. I saw I that. I have a theory, but it, right. I think it has to do with everything going on right now. I think okay. So one thing is that the fact that it is a re-examining of the first season is something that's untraditional. You're hitting somebody with something. I've never seen anything like it. Besides, like, it's the equivalent of having, like, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Or, or like, you know, like, it's it, that's what it is, right? So that's one thing. The fact that two women of color are at the head of this show and doing some of the things that they're doing, I think made people uncomfortable, man. I think that, like, I don't, I, don't, I can't understand if it, the the writing's pretty on brand with the first season. Sure, it's not you. You know, some of the players from the first season aren't showing as much, but the writing is fucking incredible. And some of the characters that they're bringing in, and not not just Janelle Monae and um, uh, Lady True, who that's not her name, but um, <laughs> some of the like the, the you know the guy that actually uh, works at the company, the older gentleman. This the show is oh yeah Chris Cooper yeah Chris Cooper man the things that they're doing in this this show are fucking amazing I didn't understand it I wanted to talk to you about it because it really made me feel weird man like and I was like what what other reason besides two women of color and this being an untraditional sort of show like it flipping the first idea on its head and kind of doing something different I can't really understand any other reason why I think you're right probably and maybe that. You know, again, I don't want to spoil too much, but kind of tipped it a little bit, which is just that you kind of retread some of the story from the first season, but yeah, on a different track. Like you see things kind of happening in parallel, but following different characters in their own little world, which I, I kind of think is really cool because it kind of tells you more about characters that you saw in the first season from a different perspective. Right. And I, right. I thought that was pretty, pretty smart and, in, and interesting and different. Um, I thought so too, man. But I yeah I I just I just like kind of how it like 
I'm all about like, you know, kind of can you land in terms of like, can you kind of like have all these little pieces moving around and kind of get them to come together? You know, you, you, you kind of tell stories forwards and backwards and time is played with a, a bit in this season, even the first season too. But, you know, you kind of have like markers that kind of show you, am I in the present or am I in a flashback kind of thing? And I don't know that the first season did that really cool and really kind of, uh, cleverly and I, I i thought this season did too um yeah i don't know in general I, I i didn't get the negativity around it i i mean we both watched it like in two nights and we we're like when i was looking up like i guess general consensus or whatever rotten tomatoes imdb i was surprised but maybe it is that maybe it is just people being uncomfortable which which is i mean take that shit somewhere else i don't know like it's just a good story like it's an interesting story and like joan cusack's in this season and she's fucking awesome and everything. She's ki- she kills it, man. And she's so good. And, like, she's totally Joan Cusack. But in this character, it's its own thing. And it's just like, I don't know. Yeah, De- John, you should definitely check it out. I think you would enjoy it. No, the trailers for the second season looked cooler to me than the first, frankly. So I was like, oh, now I'm now I'm interested. Yeah. I hate when I when I sleep on something. But I love when I suddenly have a bunch of uh, stuff to catch up on. Um, The show that I was going to talk about is one that Steve and I kind of mentioned in passing. Um, and let me give you context too, man. I'm a huge action movie fan. I'm a big fan of martial arts, real martial arts. I- I'm not a big fan of some of the Amer- most American films that have action in them. I know that sounds weird, mostly because the action doesn't feel, it feels a little more rehearsed. Um, and then in 2009, I was introduced to Gareth Evans, who did Marintal, um, which was a very good martial arts film. But then the, the Raid 1 and 2 really got me man really got me they're incredible films by a guy from wales who just captures action in a way that you've never seen in your life and then he did a short horror uh short in this uh, movie vhs2 called safe haven check it out please it's incredible it's like the standout in that movie then i heard about a movie called havoc that we was writing because i was waiting i'm like all right raid one raid two is coming havoc's coming i was waiting and then um Gangs of London came out. Gangs of London is every bit of martial arts that you like in some of those films, like some of the better films that you've seen with martial arts in it, combined with a crime drama with a, 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 enough heart in it to, to maybe be go on for two, three more seasons and, and be damn near flawless. Um, this, this show had so many ups and downs. And I cared for all the characters, even though even if they were villains, I, f- I fucking love this show. And the cool part about it right now is that it's kind of in this weird limbo where it's like word of mouth is traveling, but there's really no place to see it right now, unfortunately, unless you you have sources, you know. Um, but this show, start to finish, I, I showed Aaron, I waited, I watched the first two, and then I was like, let me bring Aaron in so we, she, could, she could watch it. She saw um, the bar fight scene, and she was hooked. She could not stop watching it with me. Um, and it's just, I don't know, man. I, I could sing his praises forever. Um, but, yeah, Gangs of London. I hope, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, I never thought I'd ever say this. I'm hoping that someplace like Netflix picks it up. This show needs to be seen. This show needs to be seen, man. Yeah, it's... I'm- I'm glad you liked it, cause um, or loved it, cause yeah, I loved it too. And 
It is. It is. I've been trying to read about this. Like, it, it seems weird because, like, if you when you see it on Sky Atlantic, which is how I saw it, um, it's yeah, like a co-production yeah. of Cinemax. So initially, I think it was supposed to come out this year on Cinemax here, but then I think Warner Media like announced that it was kind of pulling back Cinemax's like original shows or original programming. So the last thing I read was that like. They were basically shopping it to other networks or other, you know, platforms or whatever, um, other another U.S. like provider to be able to put it out this year, so that it kind of comes out still in 2020. I don't know where that's at currently, but I hope I hope it finds a home, whether it's Netflix or, I mean, I don't know, like or HBO Max or something. I mean, like it, it's got to come out so people can see it because it's yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. It's it's incredible. It is, man. It's it is nuts from start to fucking finish, and it pays off in in ways that you just don't. It's like if you don't pay attention to everything, you'll miss the little thing, the little transactions that are happening behind the scenes between some of the characters that pay off at weird parts. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just oh god, yeah. And I think it helps that like. You know, at least for me, I mean, there's a couple people in the show that you'll recognize, you know, just visually, like you've seen them in sh- other shows or other movies. But I mean, like to a lot of people outside of, I think, what Caitlin Stark. Oh you know, yeah. Like, there's not many people that they're going to recognize from the show, which is kind of a cool thing because it's kind of like you know exposure to a new property, a new look. You know, like I think that the action is really exciting and fresh, and the fight sequences are amazing. But it's all kind of wrapped around this like grandiose like mob thriller kind of thing which is just a great like balanced properly it's like a great mix of things for especially being like a serial like a, like a like a tv series you know like that you can kind of blow out and have a big story around that and and they kind of give you just enough action here and there and you know big twists and turns and like just the drama of the of the mob and crisscrosses and double crosses all those things like it's just, it's a pretty exciting series. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully it comes out soon here in the States so yeah, people man. can check it out. Please see it however you can see it, please, <clears throat> immediately. <laughs> yeah, if you have somebody that, uh, if you have someone that has like a Sky Atlantic login credential that loves you, maybe you can log in and watch it or get a VPN and watch it or something. But uh, it's a it's a cool show. Very cool. I think The Raid is one of the best action movies ever, period. So when you guys were talking about the action in this being being even anywhere near that level, I'm I'm totally on board for a for a sort of a saga that that can go there when uh when when the right amount of henchmen, you know, meet up in a like a parking garage or a <laughs> yeah, the, a, a kitchen of a restaurant or you know whatever kind of where there's lots of objects you can use to fight with. Yeah, like 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 li- like literally that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that those are like scenes in the series that you just. Said, well, there was basically. a big kitchen fight in the the sequel to the raid uh, uh, as well. So. Oh yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I did watch a couple of docs, like just did mention. I did I did check out the on the record doc on on HBO Max. What'd you think? Um, which I thought was what I thought that was really good. Yeah, I mean, it was good, man. Fucking sad and just like kind of disgusting in so many ways, but. Um, I'm just more so interested in like the controversy around it. I mean, I read up on that and like, you know, the whole like Oprah bailing out and like literally when it was at one of the festivals, right? Isn't that what happened? Yeah, she bailed out. 
I don't, I didn't really get it either because it's, it's not as condemning as I thought it would be so much as it is an account of a woman's story. I, I just thought that, you know, this wasn't surviving R. Kelly. This wasn't that. This was... Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I thought the documentary was really interesting and pretty well made. And I also saw, I finally watched Crip Camp on Netflix, which I thought was great. Um, it's like a Netflix doc that, I forget what festival it was at but it, it's uh produced by uh barack and michelle obama and it's basically about this camp that ran i think it ran for like 20 some years but it's basically focusing on this camp in like the i think the 70s in the early 70s that basically was a summer camp for like kid like teenagers with disabilities like physical disabilities mental disabilities and basically how it and the impact that it had on their lives um, as individuals, but then also one society as a whole, because a lot of these kids and, you know, this group of kids that went to this camp were a lot of the people behind the, uh, American, Dis- Americans with Disabilities Act that took place and like the pressure on the politicians to make that happen. So it was kind of like a safe haven where they went and felt included and felt a part of something and felt kind of empowered and, you know, enough to, to fight for things that they thought they deserved. And it's just, it's a really, it's a really impressive i mean it's motivating it's very emotional and it's like you know it follows them to where they're at today and what they've done with their lives and just like kind of the opportunities that were afforded to them because of this camp you know that was like a last resort for some of them so it's a really interesting story and um the impact that it had on policy and and legislation that exists to this day and kind of have given so many more people opportunities that may never had it you know if you try to get you know little cheesy about it you know some people even mentioned in the, in the in the doc like some of these things may not have happened if if not for some of these kids experiences at this camp and like you know becoming a part of a movement that really made things happen for a lot of uh, people with disabilities that needed support needed help and some equal measures that they had been missing for a long time so um, i think it's like an early front runner for whatever the academy awards are going to look like for docs i mean i know a lot of people really like this movie and i thought it was pretty good too so i'd check it out it's on netflix right now if that sounds interesting at all to you um but yeah it's called crip camp no you've just reminded me that i intended to see it uh when when people were talking about it uh a few weeks ago i guess yeah definitely definitely worth checking out so yeah thank you for the reminder those are those are three great reminders actually yeah man uh, there was one documentary i saw that you guys should check out the 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 less you know about it the better but um the movie little white lie which came out in 2014 i kept hearing that i should see it um how do i describe it without giving away what it is uh it it is a story about a woman who um is raised to be a white jewish woman and she is clearly a black woman and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it is a very interesting. And it's a real story. It's a woman telling her, talking about her experience um, in, the, in the 90s uh, of this strange sequence of events that happened with her family where she was raised as a, a white Jewish girl. Um, oof. It's, it's worth checking out. It's, it's free on if you have Amazon Prime. Oh, it was um, free if you had Amazon Prime. Um, as uh, the marches started, I don't know if it's free anymore, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a insane documentary with a lot of twists and turns. Uh, but little white lie, check it out, man. It's 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 a good watch, man. It's <laughs> you you start off wondering how the hell this is gonna go, and then it <laughs> then it gets weird. 
It gets really weird. Well, if you guys have nothing more, and I do not, uh, I guess we'll wrap this up. Uh, you can find us at movieshmovie.com, facebook.com slash movieshmovie. And yeah, we'll be back next week. I'm not sure what we'll be talking about next week, but I'm sure we'll come up with something fun. If you follow us on any social media channels, comment, like, follow, share, whatever you can do. And wherever you subscribe to this podcast, hopefully you've subscribed. You can leave us a review or a star rating or any kind of feedback there. It would be, it would be greatly appreciated. And all that said, I think we'll just see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. And as always, you've made our day. Bye.